Hey freaks, long time no see. How have you been? I have been up and down and up again as you might expect. Um but things are looking up. We're recording today, so things can only get better from here. Um but did y'all hear that new intro? It sounded pretty sick, right? Exciting things are happening for the pod. Um, I'd like to shout out my friend Bryce for recording and engineering that for me. We're definitely uh, stepping up the production value over here. Um, But yeah, in addition to that, obviously a lot of things have happened and also not so much has happened, but a few very exciting things. Um, I have a new nephew, my stepbrother and his wife welcomed their first baby on March 29th. And so I'm very excited about that and I cannot wait to meet the little guy. Um, My little sister turned 18 a couple weeks ago. Yeah, and about me... Um, you know, uh, my mental health is kind of all over the place, but, um, my psychiatrist and I did decide to double my dosage. So I've been working through that. Um, and I think it was a good decision. Um, I feel a lot more mellow, but I also feel like hazy. Like I do not know where the days are going, but The past few days have actually felt pretty amazing, but it's no coincidence that it is finally warm and sunny in New York City. Um, So I'm just going to ride this high for as long as I possibly can Um, (laughs) because it's just it's it's beautiful. And I, I don't remember what it was like to be depressed frankly. But yeah, you know, I have been consuming a lot of content in case you've been under a bridge. The band Boy Genius released (laughs) their debut album. um, And so that has been consuming a lot of my time. It is absolutely incredible. Um, What else have I been doing? I um, got my roommate um, and two guys, um, none of which had seen Jennifer's body before. I got them to watch Jennifer's body with me and they loved it. And I (laughs) fell in love with it again, as I do every time I watch it. It's one of those movies that it's like so fun to show to other people because every scene is just crazier than the last. And like none of it is uninteresting. Like it's so phenomenal. And I feel like if this podcast persists, I want to do like a special Jennifer's body episode, like come October, but for another time. Um, I also, what did I do? I watched the TV show Fleischman is in trouble, um, because I will watch anything that Jesse Eisenberg is in. And it was really, really pretty good. Really an interesting story told in an interesting way. I, I liked it a lot. So if you feel like binging anything, I would recommend that. I've also been listening to the new 100 Gex album, 10,000 Gex, and I bought tickets to see them in a couple weeks, and I am so excited because they are just, say what you want about them, they get me pumped up, they're so much fun, and I'm just happy to be alive at the same time as them because this is something to experience. Um, what else have I been up to? Oh, I actually dragged my roommate with me to a horror movie trivia night a couple weeks back. Um, and it was the hardest trivia I have ever seen. Like I was so fully unprepared and I'm like, I geek out about this stuff. Like, and like, I didn't know anything. A whole round of questions were like half of them were asking about like specific characters names and y'all know me just from like listening to this I barely refer to the characters with their actual names like they are the actors to me and like frankly details like that are not important so why would I remember them but other people apparently did so I don't really fucking understand what that's about um and it felt very tedious um and they even asked questions about uh the music of some movies like they played songs one of them was like from the crow um and another one was also from a movie that I'd seen recently and I didn't get either of them and I'm like I pay attention to this stuff and yet I still cannot remember it when it's like in a trivia setting and I just I don't know how other people do I you know but it was a lot of fun. We actually, um, me and my roommate, we got paired up with this couple and we found out that they ended up actually living on the exact same block as us. Like they, (laughs) they rode the subway with us and basically followed us all the way home. And that's crazy. We were all the way downtown and we met this couple that lived on the same street as us. Um, so 
that was pretty sick. And we made some friends. <laughs> I also, this past weekend, I went to see the movie How to Blow Up a Pipeline at the Angelica. And there was a Q&A with, a, with the director and writer and some of the cast afterward. Absolutely incredible film. When and if it comes to a theater near you, definitely go see it. It was so compelling, so exciting. Like, oh, the like very tense. But yeah, like I knew I was going to love the premise of this movie, but I did not know that it was going to be so well told and so exciting and literally having me on the edge of my seat holding my breath the entire time. Like, absolutely amazing. So I cannot recommend that one enough. But, you know, now let's get back to our haphazardly scheduled programming. Uh, This week, I want to tell y'all about two films that I watched, which feature axe-wielding murderers. And because at its heart, this is a podcast for the girls, both of our villains this week are women. Hashtag girl boss. Um, So this week, I watched So I Married an Axe Murderer from 1993. And then I watched Lizzie from 2022, which I'm actually, I need to check the date on that because I feel like it was released in 2022, but after like an extended holding of it for some reason, hold on. I don't know. Maybe they just were working on it for a long time. But yeah, they were writing about it back in 2018, which I was wondering because I was like, I've definitely heard this hype for a while. And to think that it just came out last year, that kind of blows my mind. Um, But whatever the case may be. (laughs) I guess the date of release is contentious. But um, so (laughs) our first movie, So I Married an Axe Murderer, is definitely more of a com like it's a horror comedy, but it did weighs heavily on the comedy side. Um, (laughs) I watched this movie when I was very little. I loved it. You know, twist ending. Love that shit. So Oh, and if I haven't mentioned it yet, spoiler alert, I'm going to spoil both of these movies for you. I recommend you also watch them because I love them and I think they're good Um, and I can only talk about them so much. But yeah, here we go. (laughs) So in case you didn't know, So I Married an Axe Murderer is a classic Mike Myers movie. Um, The movie synopsis calls him a bookstore owner, but now I've watched a few times now and I never get any indication that he's a bookstore owner. I mean, that would make sense as to why he has money, because from the film's perspective, he is a poet and that is all he does (laughs) and what he does. But anyway, the movie starts with like the camera panning in through the city skyline in San Francisco and the song There She Goes by the Beatles plays. And they really take advantage of getting the rights to that song because they use it like five times in this movie. Um, But eventually we go into this like little hipster bar where we follow around this giant cappuccino cup until it's served to Mike Myers while he's like sitting on this couch and he takes this like bowl of coffee and he says, "Uh, I ordered the large cappuccino. Hello. You know, because it's Mike Myers. And what I will say about this, like it's so it's so Mike Myers. Everything he does is so him. But I will also say what I really like about this movie, um, it being set in San Francisco. San Francisco is like a character in the movie. And it's like, I don't know, it plays more of more than just like a backdrop role. Like it's like these characters like appreciate the city they live in. And like, I don't know. I, I don't know if what I'm saying even makes sense. And it probably sounds very corny, but I liked it. So he's Mike Myers. He's sitting on this couch in this club with his giant bowl of coffee. And he's sitting and talking to his friend who is dressed like he went to a party city and got a costume for a pimp. Um, that's what he's wearing. And Mike Myers is like, why are you dressed like an asshole? And he's like, I'm undercover. And he's like, yeah, you look like you're a cop who's undercover. But anyway, we find out that Mike Myers character, his name is Charlie. Um, and he's talking to his friend and his friend is like, what are you going to do tonight? And he's like, I'm going to do a poem about Sherry. And so he starts talking about Sherry and why they broke up. And he was like, she's a thief. She stole my cat. I can't prove it, but my cat is still missing. And the friend is like, okay, well, what about this other person? And he's like, well, you know, she was in the mafia. And what about this other person? Well, she, you know, smelled like soup, you know, so he just really can't commit. Um, But he goes up and he does this uh, mildly misogynistic poetry with like a slideshow behind him and a live jazz band. Um, And he wonders why he can't find love. This movie is pretty cathartic if you are someone like me who has ever made the mistake of falling in love with a poet with zero emotional intelligence. But 
he's cooler because he does his poetry like in front of a jazz band but you see this like smug look on his face and the raucous applause he gets it's like good doom I hate him so much but I could absolutely fall for him like he's one of those you know so the next day we see Charlie go into this butcher shop to get haggis to bring to his family dinner and this gorgeous woman is working the butcher shop um she's got long blonde curly hair she's wearing a tank top and an apron um she's played by Nancy Travis um and she helps him out and that night he takes uh his cop friend uh to his parents house for dinner and Charlie's dad is also played by Mike Myers with like the thickest Scottish accent you can imagine like it's almost Shrek like I think this guy was like the inspiration for Shrek because it's it's pretty close there um but his dad is like a conspiracy theorist but also like a conspiracy theorist in a way that I'm a conspiracy theorist because listen he's going on about uh, what he calls the pentaverate which is how like all of the wealth in the world is basically owned by five either people or corporations and like that is not far off from the actual truth but what's funny is I was googling Mike Myers and I saw something called the pentaverate and I was like oh my god what is this now and apparently it's a Netflix series that is based on this idea that his crazy dad played by him, had in this early 90s movie. Whatever. But it's something worth checking out because why have I never heard of this before? Pentaverate. Anyway. So, and the cop is just like laughing at him. He's just like Rasnum. And like his dad says something about Colonel Sanders being evil. And they all just think that that's hilarious. And I'm like, in a way, Colonel Sanders is evil. <laughs> um, but in the kitchen, Charlie's mom is showing off her new juicer and she's like reading a tabloid. And Charlie is like, you can't read that like it's real news. Because um, like the mom is like, but you read the paper. And he's like, yeah, well, the paper has facts in it. And she's like, this has facts in it. Sorry, I won't do a Scottish accent. But she's like, she looks at the cover of the, the magazine and it says man pregnant with child. And she says, that's fact. And like, I know this is supposed to be a transphobic gag, but it's also like, yeah, that is a fact. That is a pregnant man. What's the next question? (laughs) Like, but then she shows him this article, also fact, about this axe murderess, um, this woman who has killed like four of her husbands and is still at large. Um, And in the living room, the dad has had like a ton of beer and he's singing drunk. And the whole time he's like abusing his other son. Um, And when they leave the cop friend like makes out with the mom a little bit and she's like very into it she almost makes him stay um but the next day charlie is driving through town in his convertible and he sees the girl from the butcher shop but for some reason she's wearing like a milkmaid outfit and like churning something outside they never i don't they never really explain what's going on because she never puts on that outfit again But um, either way, we cut to the cop friend. He's like at the precinct and he's complaining to his boss that being a cop is boring. And he's like, I've never gotten to hang from the side of a helicopter like in the movies. And his boss is like, oh, yeah, that would be fun. And he's like, oh, yeah. And by the way, you're too nice. Anyway, a cab. Um, So Charlie goes to the butcher shop again and sees the pretty girl and she's like swamped with customers and he offers to help out because apparently his dad was a butcher. Um, So they have this like long (laughs) scene where they're working, working shop together and making like obscene gestures using the raw meat. And it was pretty gross. Um, but we find out that her name is Harriet and that night they go on a proper date at the Golden Gate Bridge, um, and eat hot dogs. And when they're walking home, these like Russian Navy men who I can only assume cat called her, um, Harriet like turns around and starts speaking Russian at them. And I guess tells them off. I don't know. Um, and Charlie is like, Oh, she's smart. And they like dance in public. It's so corny, but they go back to her place and it's like this gorgeous, eclectic multi-story townhouse with exposed bricks and like all these trinkets and shit. Um, and there's this one spot on the wall that's like dedicated to hanging this martial arts stuff of a former friend slash lover. And then they have tea and, Charlie is like I don't want to rush into anything and Harriet's like okay well like I'm down to clown and so they smash but as they're laying in bed together she's dreaming and she's calling out this name Ralph and she's like moaning and screaming and saying Ralph and laughing and so Charlie wakes her up 
And he's like, uh, you were saying Ralph in your sleep. And Harriet just turns over and is like, she's my friend <laughs> and, and falls asleep. And so the next morning, um, Charlie walks in on Harriet's sister in the shower because he thought it was her. And the sister is played by Amanda Plummer. Um, so she's got like a raspy voice, crazy hair. She's 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 kind of a weirdo. Um, and after she's out of the shower, she reads him a note that Harriet left and it ends with like, thanks for the hot dog. And it's, it's uncomfortable. Um, and then Rose is like, let me make you like a big old breakfast, pancakes, eggs, whole thing. And then she just pours him a bowl of Fruit Loops because that's all she had. Um, and Mike Myers, I don't know how much he got paid for this, but he's like, ah, I love Fruit Loops. Yes. They're light and reasonably high in fiber. I also enjoy Apple Jacks with the most flat affect. Like, I have to wonder. And anyway, later that day, Charlie takes his cop friend, or I guess he takes Charlie to the, uh, they take their little cop boat out to Alcatraz. I don't know why they couldn't take a regular boat with the regular people, but they take a little cop boat out to Alcatraz. Um, and they're talking about Harriet and Charlie says he's so smitten. He says he's in deep smit, which is something I definitely want to start saying. Um, when I'm infatuated with someone. I am in deep smit. Um, so then later they go on a little double date. The cop has this girlfriend and then like the dudes are fighting over the check and then Harriet picks it up because she's just so classy and smooth. Um, and then they walk home in the rain because they're in love. And the next day Harriet goes to meet Charlie's parents. <laughs> um, and when Charlie goes into the bathroom, we see that there's a dartboard with a picture of the queen on it, which I thought was so hilarious. Um, and he looks back at this little the little article about the the axe murderess um, they call her uh, Mrs. X um, and he's looking over this article and he's starting to connect the dots because there's like one of the victims was a Russian martial arts dude um, and one of them was a guy named Ralph and so Harriet is outside talking to Charlie's mother and she's saying that she's moved around quite a bit and so now Charlie is like hella spooked because like he saw the martial arts stuff in her apartment and she can speak Russian. So it's like all coming together. Um, so on the ride home, he kind of starts grilling her about where she's lived in the past. Um, and that night she says Ralph's name again while she's sleeping, but she's being very dodgy. She won't really talk about the past. So the next day, Charlie takes the article and shows it to his cop friend and tells him that he thinks he's dating Mrs. X. And the cop is like, two words, therapy. And then he's like, you're just scared of commitment. You need to forget about this. You're just looking for a way out. And apparently the article says that one of the men was famous for being able to sing only you in six different languages. And, you know, so far, Charlie only knows that she can speak two languages. So I don't really understand the connection. But the cop does a little bit more research and finds out all the dudes in the article are officially missing. None of them have actually been reported dead. But it doesn't make Charlie feel that much better. And that night, he's like watching the news and he sees a segment about the rise in poisoning murder occurring in family and just after that Harriet comes in with a quote-unquote health shake that she made especially for him and I don't know what health shakes looked like in the early 90s but this just looked like Kool-Aid with ice in it like ice cubes like there was nothing shook about it um but Charlie just refuses to take a sip because he's like very paranoid and then he just like locks himself in the closet but later in bed Harriet is saying how like she feels so safe with him and she loves that they can be like totally vulnerable with each other and she jokes about like how easy it would be to kill each other and then he starts like freaking out and she's like come on I'm just trying to explain what a good relationship we have and he's like okay just like don't touch my ear <laughs> you know but the next day Charlie is going to the newspaper and and I don't know why it took me so long to realize this, but these two guys, one of them is Kramer and one of them is Mike Haggerty. Um, but Kramer is like a reporter and Mike Haggerty plays like an obituary writer. And they're kind of joking about people that have died, like making puns. And the woman that Charlie is talking to is like, hey, those are people that like actually died. <laughs> um, and they're like, OK, yeah, sorry about that. And then like Charlie's trying to like pay for something in the newspaper uh, that will recognize his parents like 30th anniversary or whatever. Um, and he overhears these guys talking about a Ralph Elliott that died, who was a plumber, um, found like in Texas or whatever and that is all connecting for him so he turns around to them and he's like does it say anything about his wife and they were like oh hey sorry man we didn't mean to be insensitive like we get it and he was like no I'm serious like 
did is there anything about his wife and Kramer is like I get it man I'm insensitive I'm a bad guy I'm sorry and Mike was like no I literally I need to know about his wife and he's like no they didn't mention his wife and then he like storms out all angry because he thought he was being called out for being an insensitive prick which I mean, he was. Um, But later, Charlie meets Harriet in the park, and he's like, I think we need to end things because I'm pretty sure you'll leave me. And she's like, leave you? What does that mean? He breaks it off, and later that night, he goes to the club, and he does poetry about her. And then we see him hanging out on the roof of his apartment, and he gets a call from his cop friend saying that someone came forward and confessed to Ralph Elliott's murder. So now he is on a mission to get her back. And he goes to her door and is like, listen, I'll go to therapy twice a week. Uh, what If my insurance will cover it, I don't know. I'll figure it out. But I'll go to therapy twice a week. Also, I love you. And Harriet, it's just like, it is not good enough, baby boy. Um, so later that night, he gets a three-piece jazz band on the roof outside her apartment and starts yelling some poetry at her with an unlit cigarette between his fingers. And this just makes her swoon. She is in deep smit. And then they take a candlelit bubble bath together in this amazing jacuzzi. And then Harriet's friend, Ralph, pays a visit. And Charlie meets this woman that Harriet calls Ralph. (laughs) And Charlie is like over the moon because like, thank God she didn't kill that guy named Ralph. And also, thank God it's a girl. And it's like, it is a girl, but she is still moaning her name in her sleep. Like that's still still something to maybe be concerned about, my guy. But he hugs her while he's only wearing a bath towel and then the bath towel falls and we can see his bare ass and it's very funny. Then we are at the 30th anniversary party of Charlie's parents and Charlie is feeling sentimental. So he proposes to Harriet and she's like, how about we just live together for now? And he's like, no, not good enough. And so she eventually reluctantly agrees. Um, and they have a huge Scottish church wedding and Harriet just does not seem happy. But when it's time to kiss the bride, she jumps his Argyle sock kilt wearing bones. And at the reception, Harriet grabs the mic and decides to sing a song to her husband, which of course is the song Only You, as previously mentioned in the article. And it's very creepy and very off-putting. But then the two embark on their honeymoon together to an intimate poetry-themed bed and breakfast on the coast. And Harriet seems like so forlorn the whole trip, very unwell. And back at the precinct, the boss decides to get mean with the cop. And he's like, you can't be sniffing around homicide. Um, But apparently the girl that confessed to Ralph Elliott's murder also admitted to murdering like Abraham Lincoln. So obviously they've got the wrong crazy person. Um, And so the cop starts freaking out because he needs to warn Charlie. So he decides to fax a photo of Harriet to the families of all of the dudes that went missing and they're like yep that that that's her that's my dead slash missing son's wife um so he's freaking out and knows he needs to warn charlie but of course there's a storm rolling in and he just can't reach them so he gets someone to like fly him there and he's in this very rickety sketchy uh plane with a very unwell pilot and back in the hotel in the bathroom harriet uh she fishes a necklace out of her like face powder compact not compact like one of those big things of like loose powder she takes a necklace out of it and on the necklace there are three different wedding rings on it anyway they get dressed and they go down for dinner and Harriet is wearing one of those gorgeous culturally appropriative like geisha gowns um and when Charlie gets up to go wash his hands she like has to follow him to the bathroom and then when they're both back at the table the mater d gives Charlie the phone and it's the cop friend and he finally was able to make it to a payphone and he warns them or he warns him that Harriet is Mrs. X and then the phone goes dead because of the storm and Charlie is like freaking out and then the little band starts playing only you and he starts freaking out more and so now the cop is trying to commandeer a civilian vehicle by being like please can I commandeer your vehicle and the guy is like no but he ends up giving him a ride to the hotel um, and the power's like going in and out and they go up to the hotel room and Harriet uh, is with Charlie and she's like I gotta tell you something and she's being real intense and she's like I've been married before and Charlie's like yeah I know that and he picks up one of the fireplace tools to like defend himself and Harriet's like what are you doing and then he's 
somehow is able to lock Harriet in a closet and he goes to the phone. Um, but before he can use it, he like sees a note right next to the phone. It's addressed to Harriet and signed by him. And it says that he's leaving her. And he's, as he's reading it, Rose comes like out of the darkness wearing a poncho wielding an axe and she's like you were supposed to be dead by the time the note was written so I need to kill you now because this is the plan <laughs> um and so he climbs out the window onto the roof and she's just like following him around with this hatchet and the cop has made it here by now and he kicks the door in and he sees Harriet locked in the closet and he takes her out to handcuff her and he nearly kills Charlie when he discharges his gun in the air because he wants to feel like a badass meanwhile Charlie is being chased around the roof by Rose wielding an axe and you can like hear the axe hitting the roof repeatedly but the cop is inside with Harriet tied to a chair and is like listen I know you're the killer and she's like can you hear them on the roof right now like you have to do something like it's obviously not me but of course like he's an idiot and anyway Charlie almost falls off the roof and the two have a tussle and a good kick in the nuts to you know break up the tension and then Rose almost falls off the roof but Charlie doesn't let her fall like he he holds her because he doesn't want her to fall to her death because that's you know his wife's sister sorry I think I go on a bit of a tirade sometimes when horror movies have like unnecessary deaths which I know this probably doesn't even count as a horror movie it's more of a comedy anyway and anyway and that's why they have to keep it light but also like anyway I just like the fact that you know she didn't have to die and so she didn't um but anyway she does go to prison which I guess is to many just as bad and so she leaves in a cop car and charlie and harriet are in love charlie does some poetry in the club and harriet is there to watch him and then we zoom back out of the san francisco skyline and the credits roll isn't that crazy though like twists and turns like the whole time you really think it's going to be Harriet but I think after meeting the sister Rose like we got to know something's up because she's a little bit weird um but like you know two weird sisters that that makes sense but also like the motive of Rose is shaky because like yeah it's like oh she's just so possessive of her older sister she just wants to keep her all to herself but it feels so primally gay but like that's her sister so it's weird and I remember like the twist like I mean I've always known it and like it blew my mind as a child but I do wonder if it has the same effect on adults when they first watch it but either way I think it's fun if you want a funny kooky movie to watch watch so I married an axe murderer because <laughs> last I checked everyone loves Mike Myers so do yourself a favor now the next film is a much 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 more serious one and very well told, very beautiful, very cinematic, very well performed, pretty much perfect in every way. It was so gorgeous to watch and um, told the story in a very interesting way. And I mean, not coming from the perspective that this could be accurate but could be I mean we really don't know what happened there um and for those of you who don't know I mean Lizzie Borden is famous for having killed her family with an axe but she was never convicted like she lived free um but the reason like she wasn't convicted is because the jury was sexist you know it's one of those weird uh situations where there's like there's no way but everyone fully believes that she actually did it. But it's still kind of a mystery because we don't really have the facts. <laughs> um, so anyway, I will tell you about Lizzie. Lizzie Borden is played by Chloe Sevigny. And Kristen Stewart plays the maid, um, Bridget slash Maggie. And so this is like late 1890s. Two older women are still living at home because they haven't been married off. Um, that is Lizzie and Emma Borden. Um, and the father has remarried because their mother has died. So we just have the father, the stepmother, and the two daughters. And the story starts when um, Kristen Stewart's character gets hired. Actually, let me step back. The movie starts with a blood-curdling scream where the father and stepmother are found dead with several axe wounds in their head. Lizzie is talking to the family attorney and who is trying to like figure out the situation and he asks if her father had any enemies and she pauses and we flash back to six months before the day that Kristen Stewart's character got hired. Does that make sense? So she's got this thick Irish accent and her name is Bridget. But as soon as she gets there and meets the stepmother, who's played by Fiona Shaw, um, 
she insists that she be called Maggie. Um, and after showing Bridget to her room, Lizzie comes in to grab something out of the dresser. And after meeting Bridget, she insists on calling her Bridget and not Maggie. She's like, that's not your real name. I'm going to call you by your real name. Um, and she like clearly has this like unusual interest in her. Um, and the father is sitting in the din reading the paper by candlelight and the stepmother is knitting and Lizzie is all dressed up and she announces that she's going to the theater. Um, and the father tells her that she isn't to leave without anyone accompanying her, especially because she's a Borden, you know, um, but she's stubborn and she goes anyway. And her father is just like, be back by midnight. Um, but at the theater, Lizzie has a seizure and like falls out in front of everyone like convulsing. And later we see her in bed being tended to by a doctor. And like, clearly this is ha- like, this isn't the first time that this has happened. Um, but her sister Emma is like there comforting her by her bedside. Later we see Lizzie go to the barn and there's like a bunch of pigeons in there and she just holds them and is very sweet to them, very nurturing to them. And she reads to them and Bridget comes in and Lizzie starts asking her if she's had any schooling and she's like, I've had a few years. And Lizzie's like, are you afraid? And Bridget's like, afraid of what? And Lizzie says, men don't need to know things, but women do. And so she starts helping Bridget learn how to read. And this movie is like slow moving, but it cuts away quickly. Like the plot is mostly innuendo, which I appreciate because I don't think it like relishes in its like gross moments, (laughs) you know, like it's a very, it's a very chilling and a pretty gruesome movie, but it's like the whole relationship between Bridget and the father is is very much just an innuendo which also makes it so sinister because like you can imagine that that's exactly how it was to like the people living in this like Bridget was going through something awful and even though everyone around knew about it like it was still so hidden and so hushed but anyway so we see Bridget she's like outside doing laundry um and the father approaches her and he's like you're doing a great job but You should uh, let your bedroom door open at night to, quote, let the air circulate. And that evening, we hear him in her room. And then he goes back to bed, gets in bed with his wife. And we see the look on her face and that she knows exactly what's going on. Um, And the next day, the family receives a cryptic, unsigned letter on the front porch, which reads, your sins will find you. And later that evening, there's a knock on the door while everyone's sleeping. And the father, like, goes to the door with a gun and goes outside to see who it is, but there's no one there. And so the next day, Lizzie approaches him, and she's like, maybe we should go to the constable and tell them about these threats. And he's like, this is our problem. We can handle it. And Lizzie is like, did you do anything Um, in regard to the fact that, like, the dad... Uh, recently like their the dad recently acquired this land but then he's like the family acquired this land you know putting the onus on everyone for the work that he's doing um acquired land that belonged to farmers who are apparently indebted to the bank or something i don't really know what his job is but basically uh lizzie is like you know did you piss anyone off um and he is like how dare you and he flips it around on her and he's like do you know how bad it looks when you insist on going out by yourself all the time and having these seizures and drawing attention to our family and making us look weak you're actually the reason this is happening to us and just totally flips it around classic gaslighter so later the character uncle john is introduced um and the actor is the guy who played the ghost from american horror story season one the guy with the hat who was like all half burned up yeah he comes for a visit and he's discussing something with the father in private and they shut the door but lizzie is outside the office eavesdropping um And the father shows John the series of like threatening letters they've received. And he says that he's like, John, we may need you to like come into the family and help the girls manage their finances. Um, And if anything like were to happen and then they like kind of start trying to decide which sister they're going to marry him to like in a very cryptic way. Um, And then he like starts asking about their health. And like, of course, like Lizzie's is a big problem. And we don't really hear the end of that conversation. But later, the father gives Lizzie this locket with a picture of her mother in it. And then she gets the idea that she's going to, like, take all the jewelry in the house, try to make it look like a robbery. And she takes it to the pawn shop to get cash. And later in the house, we see the cops talking to the girls and ask them if they saw anything. And, of course, everyone suspects the maid and he wants to look through her things. And then the dad gets home in a tear and he's like, that won't be necessary. 
And he's like, the guy from the pawn shop came to my office and I can't believe you've done this, Lizzie. (laughs) And he goes out to the barn and he takes all of these pigeons that Lizzie loves and he starts chopping their heads off one by one in the most like maniacal way possible. And Lizzie is just sitting on the ground screaming at him. Um, And later at the dinner table, everyone has served their own individual bird to eat. So, of course, Lizzie is, like, traumatized. Um, After making a snide remark, she she gets, like, slapped across the face by her dad. Um, And she goes up to her room and she locks all the doors and she's just crying. And as her father starts, like, banging on the door, she starts screaming. And she wakes up in her bed and Bridget is tending to her and tells her that she's had another spell. And next we see Lizzie. She's at the attorney's office talking with the family attorney. And she's asking him, like what he knows about her inheritance and if she's in trouble and he's like I can't reveal anything to you and she's like you just need to tell me like if my uncle is going to be the custodian of our estate because he's like a liar and a fraud Um, but he doesn't really tell her anything so next we see Bridget go to see Lizzie in the barn and she has a letter but she can't read it all the way and she's like freaking out so she just gets Lizzie to read it for her and it's a letter to Bridget to tell her that her mother has died Um, And so she breaks down and she starts crying in Lizzie's arms. And later when she's washing laundry, the father comes up and he's like acting sympathetic, but of course is being a predator. And later that night, Lizzie can hear him in Bridget's room. And so she takes a mirror and she breaks it and she leaves all the glass outside of Bridget's door so that her dad will have to step on it when he leaves and he does and the next morning in the kitchen like the energy between Bridget and Lizzie is like very weird but Bridget is like do you think your father will write a recommendation for me if I leave and they like both know what's going on they're just like not talking about it um later in the barn Lizzie says that she's sorry it's happening to Bridget and she says that she's ashamed to be his daughter and then the two start like passing notes to each other throughout the day and then we have this scene where Bridget is helping Lizzie get dressed and it is very erotic and they almost kiss but they're interrupted by Emma the sister and later Lizzie is walking home when she sees Uncle John leave a letter at their front door and it's another one of those threatening letters and so she goes and she compares the handwriting to John's signature on this document she finds in her dad's office and she brings it to Emma and Emma like refuses to believe her Um, but she confronts John about it later that night Um, and of course he gaslights her and then he starts choking her until Bridget comes in the room and interrupts them and the next day he's gone before Lizzie even wakes up and downstairs the stepmother is reading and the father comes in home early he says he's like oh I wanted to have lunch with you my wife Um, but he immediately starts asking for Maggie and (laughs) she is like not amused the stepmother she's like oh do you need like a sock mended did you need some ironing done like what (laughs) her afternoons are her own and then she tells him she says I'm continually astonished by the ways you find to humiliate this family zing got him and outside in the barn Lizzie and Bridget are getting very intimate and comfy and they uh, totally bone but of course the father comes outside looking for Bridget and he sees what they're doing later he confronts Bridget by like putting his arm around her face and like nearly assaulting her um and he calls her a whore and then the next day he confronts lizzie um and he tells her to leave bridget alone and he says that lizzie is an abomination and she's like well i guess we're on equal footing finally and then the stepmother passes through and says he won't forgive you not now and that quote it won't be long before he sends you away which is so like needlessly cruel, but like this woman's life is very sad. So I guess I get it. But later, Lizzie and Bridget are talking by candlelight. And again, we don't really know what they're discussing, but Lizzie promises that she won't let anything bad happen to her. And then we see Lizzie snooping around her dad's office and she finds his will and she burns it up. And now we flash back forward to the beginning, to that blood curdling scream. Lizzie calls Bridget. She says someone killed her father she calls out for Bridget and Bridget looks half dead herself like she is unwell and Lizzie is just yelling at her to go for the police and then we see the real nice gruesome shot of this guy's face just totally axed in and upstairs the stepmother lay dead next to her bed and we're back to the question the cop or not the cop at the beginning the attorney asked at the beginning about the if her father had any enemies 
And Lizzie's like, oh, you know, everyone has enemies. This is America. <laughs> and we see them all at, an, at a funeral, two coffins, just like in the living room, surrounded by people holding candles, including Emma, Lizzie, and Bridget. And later, the attorney and, the, and Emma are talking with the prosecutor. And they're saying that, like, they have enough evidence against Lizzie. There's a hatchet with blood and hair on it. And there's a motive because since there's no will, the sisters stand to inherit a really large fortune. And this was kind of cool because I am taking wills, trusts, and estates law this semester. And I am not learning much due to my own lack of interest but I found this very interesting because it's you know it's exactly what we've already talked about but um so basically when someone dies without a will that's called dying in testacy and if someone dies in testacy the distribution of their assets is determined based on the state's in testacy statutes and so they are in Massachusetts um and basically in that state they both stand to inherit like all of their father's fortune because they are the living heirs and there is no will as far as anyone else is concerned and so Emma starts trying to blame the maid but the maid has an alibi because apparently she was seen washing windows outside all day. And Emma ensures the prosecutor that Lizzie is not going to plead guilty, even if you offer like a lesser sentence. Um, but the prosecutor is like, if she doesn't, she's going to hang. But meanwhile, Lizzie is getting taken to really old timey jail. She gets arrested. She goes to really old timey jail through this underground tunnel. And she gets to wear this really cute old stripy outfit um, and waits there until trial. She reads the paper, which describes her as an unfeeling, cold-blooded killer, and she doesn't seem to have any emotional response to that. Um, but back home, Uncle John is tearing through the house, trying to find the will, and Bridget is packing up to leave, and Emma is threatening her, basically, and is like, if you let my sister hang for this, I'm going to destroy you. And Bridget is like, okay, good luck. I like got to get the fuck out of this house. Cannot stay here. Girl is traumatized. But while in jail, Lizzie gets visited first by her Uncle John and then by Bridget. Um, and Uncle John, in his visit to her, he mentions that the stepmother was killed approximately 90 minutes before the father. And under Massachusetts and estate law, this ensures that Lizzie and Emma inherit everything. This is another interesting thing about uh, estate law and intestacy law um, is that the order of the death matters because if the stepmother had died second then the stepmother would have inherited from the father. So if the father had died first and that you could prove that and if it was not like in the same instant, like 90 minutes apart, that like passes the threshold. I don't know if there's an exact time, but it can't be like in the exact same incident as far as I'm aware. Mm, see, this is why I really need to study. But basically, if the father had died first, then the stepmother would inherit everything. So if the stepmother inherits everything, theoretically, and dies 90 minutes later, then like her descendants are going to get like what she got from her husband and everything that she has you know presumably um but since the stepmother died first and she left everything to the father and then the father died second everything gets left to his daughters does that make sense um and so basically uh uncle john is in the cell with her and is like i just think that's a little interesting you know it seemed like it was enough time to make sure and Lizzie is like, you think uh, the guy who murdered my family had such like good intentions for my future? Like she is not giving up. But at trial, uh, a chemist takes the stand and he testifies that the blood and hair samples that were found on the hatchet actually came from an animal, specifically a bird. And it wasn't even hair. It was actually feathers. <laughs> um, and Bridget also testifies and gives Lizzie an alibi and says that she was walking outside all morning. Um, and the prosecutor presses her and asks how she could be sure that Lizzie was outside all morning if she was washing windows. And Bridget was like, uh, it's washing windows. Like, I think I can manage. It's, it's not that hard. You might think it's hard, but I'm, I'm cool with it. But after her testimony, Bridget visits Lizzie in jail and Bridget is just like, listen, girl, the lavender haze is over. This will never work out between us. We live in the real world and I cannot believe I got cut up this caught up in this mess with you and also I'm scared of you bitch and of course I'm paraphrasing yeah she's basically terrified of Lizzie like she doesn't want to be associated with her she doesn't want her to go down for it like she will be her alibi but also I think only because she's really scared of her but now we get to see the part where it all went down so it's the morning 
Lizzie gives a note to Bridget, and she tells Bridget that she needs to deliver it to her stepmother at exactly 9 a.m., and she goes outside to wash the windows. Lizzie goes outside and picks a pear from the pear tree and then goes inside. She dresses all the way down naked. (laughs) And at 9 a.m. exactly, Bridget brings the stepmother the note, and the stepmother quickly goes upstairs to get changed. While she's in her room getting changed, Lizzie is waiting behind the door, buck naked, axe in hand. She tearfully approaches her from behind and takes her down with one swing, but continues swinging the axe for like, I couldn't even count the number of times. I think the nursery ride said like 40, but it was close to that. It was a lot. And poor Bridget is outside washing the windows on the same side of the house and is just having to hear it all. And she is freaking out. She gets sick. She literally throws up because like, oh my God, can you imagine? But then um, Lizzie goes to rinse herself off and she rinses the hatchet off and she leaves the hatchet at the top of the basement stairs. She goes up to her room, gets dressed, and she sits on her bed while her father starts banging at the front door. In the basement, Bridget hears him banging and so she goes up to let him in. But before she lets him in, she hears Lizzie in her bedroom like laughing and giggling to herself and she is like clearly so freaked out so sometime later the father is just sitting in the den reading the paper and lizzie brings him some water she kisses him on the head and she asks him if he wants a pear and he looks at her like she's crazy for a long time before saying no so lizzie goes outside sits under the pear tree and Bridget goes to the top of the basement stairs and she quickly starts undressing but she looks unwell like she is pale and sweating like she is not okay (laughs) and she approaches the father and she says Mr. Borden and he looks up at her and she's just shaking and terrified and she can't do it and she's starting to cry and Lizzie comes in and the dad is just like she's having a fit but Lizzie just takes the hatchet and and takes care of him herself, but like whacks him like over a dozen times. Like the thing, like could have taken him down easily with two, easily with two swings, but she goes in. She will not fucking stop. And poor Bridget is just standing in the corner naked and afraid and just like crying. And she like sinks down to the floor because she just like has to watch this happen. Like, oh my God. But then after this, Lizzie goes and cleans off the hatchet and then she goes to the barn And she humanely, she takes one of the pigeons and she's like, I'm sorry. And she kills it as quickly and as cleanly as she possibly can. Like the care she took in killing this pigeon is so fascinating. But then she just like, you know, makes sure she gets the blood and the feathers on the hatchet. And then she saws off the end of the hatchet and throws it into a fire. And then we cut back to that blood curdling scream. And so now we know where this scream came from. It came from a point where Lizzie was so calm. Well, no, she just went ape shit on her stepmother and her father. But after it, after she was done swinging, she was calm, serene. She was taking care of business. You know, she screams and then she takes her dad's jacket and uses it to like prop up his head. And then she screams again for, she calls her Maggie and tells her to go to the police and get the police and so that like face that Bridget makes at the beginning of the movie that we didn't understand it's like now we're like god the girl has just seen hell and she is traumatized and she cannot believe that the girl she agreed to do this with is actually turning out to be unhinged like actually unhinged and and it's like it's just the two of them there those are the only two people left in the house are Bridget and Lizzie and Lizzie refuses to like give up the act like she is in alibi mode so back in the jail cell we see Bridget looking at Lizzie just like so distraught and she's just like never write me I never want to see you again and then she leaves and so we just see like a like a closing card with text on it and it says that Lizzie was found not guilty because a jury of all men could not believe that a woman with her social standing in particular could commit such a heinous crime. That after the trial, Emma and Lizzie had a rift and were estranged until the, or for the rest of their lives. And that Bridget moved to a farm in Montana and died in her 80s. Lizzie lived alone most of her life, estranged from society, died in her mid-60s, mostly a loner. And she left most of her fortune to the Humane Society. 
girl loved animals. Girl loved animals. But girl went in on her fucking stepmother with that axe. Like, the father, I get. I get it. I get the type of passion that could motivate you to do that to your father. But I also feel like, you know, if the woman you love is in the room, (laughs) you cut down the gore, you leave it to two wax, and you shield her from the horrors. But like the way she went in on her stepmother, like I can kind of understand the anger, but it's also so misplaced because like her stepmother was basically in the exact same situation that she was in. And it, you know, I can totally like, oh, I don't know, just the the absolute switch. And the fact that like the way the story is told, it's like Lizzie was doing this for herself but was also doing it for Bridget and I don't think if Bridget had come into her life she would have done it but Bridget could never look at her the same afterward and oh it's just so fascinating and of course we don't know if this is how it really went down it's how I'm choosing to believe it went down um from here on out you know, I really kind of want to look into the true crime side of this, see what the actual facts are and see how they line up with the plot. But from like what I've heard, like this sounds like they were really trying to build a narrative that would make sense with the uh, timeline that was established. And I think the fact maybe that only her father's blood was found in her, not her stepmother's. Um, but oh, very interesting. And the fact that, you know, Bridget was supposed to kill her father, like that was the plan. And how would that have worked, though? Like Lizzie would have really taken the fall for both of those things. Do you really think she would have? I don't know. It's hard to say. I like I love Lizzie Borden now. And I think she's that person. Like whenever someone asks you, like, oh, who would you like have dinner with dead or alive? I think that's my girl. I really want to hear her story. I find it very fascinating. But once again, I surprised myself. I, you know, picked two movies just because I was like, okay, common theme, murder weapon is an axe. But these two movies had so much more in common with that. The gay undertones and overtones. The fact that both movies, the chief suspects were women the whole time. Men were being killed. Yeah, the stepmother also got killed. Collateral damage, I'd say. But yeah, we have two axe-wielding women who likely committed their crimes in a fit of lesbian rage. And I think that's beautiful. But anyway, that's all I have for you folks this week. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you feel so inclined. And also to follow me on Instagram and Twitter. And all of the info will be in the show notes. So till next time, love ya. Bye.